I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. I first met my guest this week in 2019 at a conference where I learned about this new idea that she was working on. I immediately was a fan both of her idea and of her passion. As a successful entrepreneur, she had a drive that was seemingly unmatched by other people I had met. Jewel Burke Solomon does not disappoint. She's the head of Google Startups US and managing partner at Colab Capital out of Atlanta, Georgia, that is working every day to close the wealth gap for black Americans by creatively structuring financial capital and social capital. Her story is powerful and the influence of family and faith are clear. Yeah, so I've been very reflective lately and, and have been thinking a lot about childhood and kind of what were those early points where I thought, okay, I can do this or I want to be in business. And I keep going back to this memory of when I was growing up, I talked about my grandfather in the piece that I wrote. And I, I remember going into the bank with him and I remember the respect it was kind of like the world stopped when he entered the room and everyone said, hello, Mr. Bergs. How are you, Mr. Bergs? I hope you're having a great day. And in his presence sort of shifted uh, every, every room that he went into. And I remember thinking, man, that is, that's power right there. That's pretty cool. And uh, I, I think that was kind of the earliest memory I have of thinking, okay, I want to be like my grandfather. And I knew that he was a business owner. And I knew that from an early age and I knew, at least I knew it, it meant something around having buildings and having money. <laughs> that was the thing. I knew that um, because my job early, I can remember back to probably when I was five or six years old and going to Mobile during the summer, uh, I was always given the stack of ones to count and make the recording for, for the bank, um, you know, record how many ones we had and give that to my grandmother and my grandfather to, to put together the, um, the report for the day. And I thought that that was, first of all, that was a cool job for me as a young person <laughs> to be, have that responsibility of counting and making sure it was correct. Um, and then just, again, that, that kind of respect that he had going into the bank or anywhere that I would go with him, I noticed that people would take notice of when he entered the room. And I thought that that was, um, I thought that was awesome from an early age. And so I think, yeah, back probably five or six years old is when I thought, okay, I want to do what he does one day. Mm. And then that was reaffirmed growing up and watching my mom in business and watching my dad take on the businesses that my grandfather started. Um, so yeah, I, I always tell people I got it honest. I probably never considered too many other careers, but to be an entrepreneur. Um, but yeah, those early memories were very much formative and very much influential to everything I'm doing today. That's awesome. Well, it's neat because I think, um, you know, I, I think sometimes one of the things I've been reflective of in COVID is when everybody's forced to work from home. And so now on the Zoom calls or Google Hangouts or whatever, the kids pop in, you know, or whatever, you know, just life is happening. And I think, yeah. you know, for so long, business and family, business and life have been so disconnected from one another. Uh, that our children sometimes grow up and don't even know what mommy or daddy does when they go off to work. Mm -hmm. And then we expect to kind of release our children into the world. And it's just, it's just been refreshing, I think, to see people try to think through what the intertwining of those two looks like. But then I think to hear the intentionality of your grandfather and then your parents to weave that into your upbringing 
to give you a picture of what could be, what it's like for them. And so how do we as parents, and, and, you know, I'd be curious, I know, I don't think you have any children yet, but as you think about, you know, your family down the road, what does that look like for you uh, and for your husband to kind of like help your children have a picture of what could be? Um, and, and so that's, that's one of the things I've been thinking about. I don't know if that's think, something you think about, but I, I have four daughters and I'm always trying like, how do I help them, you know, get a picture of what this looks like and the, the good and the bad, you know, and, and the mundane yeah. and the exciting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think that's so, it's, it's so interesting and it's, it's generous of you. I don't know that my parents were, maybe they were, but my <laughs> parents had me pretty young. I don't, I don't know how intentional they were. <laughs> I think it was more a, a function of a need for them to bring me along on, you know, my mom was always in the mm. office and she, she, my parents divorced when I was, when I was very young. And so for the most part, it was me and my mom. And so she didn't have a, a babysitter oftentimes and so I had to kind of tag along with her to go to the office and, and same thing when I was spending summers with my dad you know that was our time together so he was working so I was working that was yeah. kind of how, how it was um but I do think that was so valuable for me and I sometimes I feel a little bad because I have younger brothers and by the time they were born um my parents had transitioned a little bit so my dad um by the time my younger brothers were born, he had transitioned from the businesses my grandfather started. Most of them, um, unfortunately, he wasn't able to to hold on to. And so he transitioned to nonprofit work. So my dad's been a director of a boys and girls club in Mobile for the last uh, 10 years or so. And before that was a director of a YMCA. Um, and so has been mostly working with children and um, in these capacities with nonprofits for the majority of my younger brother's lives. So they actually never have seen him mm. um, in the same way that I saw him kind of working day and night in, we had convenience stores and laundromats and, and those types of businesses. Um, so they didn't get the benefit of that. They've seen him work obviously really hard in, in uh, the capacities that he's worked, but it's a little bit different. Sure. And then um, my younger brother with my mom, my mom's businesses started doing well by the time, by the time my brother was born. So his upbringing and, you know, the way that my mom was working when I was growing up is very different than how she's working now. So my younger brothers, I would say, are uh, a little bit more spoiled ah. <laughs> than I was growing up, or at least that's, that's how it seems to me. That's awesome. Um, but I will send them a about, link to this podcast. You know, making, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they might see it anyway, but um, I think about how different, you know, and that ha happens when there's a, a big sure. age gap between kids. I think, you know, the, the first children have a certain upbringing and then the, the, the latter um, have a little bit different. But I do think a lot about making sure that they have the benefit of some of the things that I think have been really beneficial to me as far as um, what, I, what my parents instilled in me, just by me seeing the work that they were doing and how hard it was for them. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's something that I think about, not yet because I don't have kids, but I think about it for my younger siblings making sure that they understand, you know, the value of hard work and yeah. how everything is not going to come easy for them. Um, and so that's, that's really important to me as well. Yeah. It's interesting. And I think that's, that's a really helpful perspective. Um, because I do think as a parent, you want, you want the best for your kids. You don't want them to see the struggle. You want them to, you know, the world's, their world's good, you know, or, and, but I think sometimes in doing that, we forget that some, you know, them seeing, the pain, or as you were describing, even your piece, your mother weeping, um, at times over her own business and the journey, it's tough. Um, the rawness of that yeah. is, 
is formative. Uh, but to, much like your grandfather, I think bringing our children into that experience, I remember some of my earliest memories are similar to your to you and your grandfather. Uh, my dad was a military officer and going on post and seeing soldiers salute him, you know, you know, gave me a sense of pride in kind of what he did and who I didn't understand what he did, but it was like, this is, this is something special. And, and so, yeah. and, and really helpful for me in, in kind of thinking through my own, my own future. There was, there was one quote in your, in your piece um, that I wanted uh, to read real quick and just kind of talk a little bit about. You said, my biggest takeaway from watching the entrepreneurial journeys of both my parents was that in order to achieve any level of success, I would have to work harder and sacrifice more than most. I learned that there would be many things I cannot control in life and business, but the one thing I can always control is what I put into achieving any goal. Uh, and I thought that was uh, powerful, uh, to say the least. But I wanted to talk to you too a little bit about like, so you, you've you built a startup. You you now have done venture investing. Um, and even in, I think in here, you, you acknowledge kind of the life-altering um, financial situation that you find yourself in because of uh, the fortunate sale to, to Amazon. Um, but still, you know, you're in your young 30s, you have this this drive and this passion and this energy to, to do more. What what is Where does that drive come from? What What is your why? What's this purpose that, that drives you to continue to, to, to push forward with these things? Yeah. Um, I still see problems. I see big problems that need to be solved. And I think I've been super blessed and um, in, in my life in, in ways that I can, cannot even imagine or could not have even ima- imagined. And I think that because of those blessings, I have to continue to work to make sure that other people are in positions um, that they may have not thought that they could ever be in. And so I think my journey is so unique and I've gathered so many things along the way. And I think it's important for me to not hold them, not hold those things and not hold those blessings, but really focus on how can I uh, make sure that other people are, are blessed in, in various ways. And so that's really the motivation is, you know, I don't ever assign anything that has happened to me to just me. I think it's mm-hmm. all been a, a function of, you know, my faith and, and, in my case, I'm, I'm a, a believer. So God has blessed me in, in many ways. And then, um, you know, my, my family history and the fact that I, I was born into this family where I could literally watch entrepreneurs day and night and see their journeys. And so all of these things kind of put together um, to me means that I have these unique insights and talents and gifts that I have to share. And so that means that I have to keep working yeah. <laughs> at least for the, for the time being. Um, and, and I'm in these <laughs> positions that, that are, that are very, um, they don't even feel, I mean, it's definitely hard work to, to raise a fund and to lead a team at, at Google now with Google for startups. But um, the work is so rewarding when I'm able to see what happens when we invest in a, in a company that maybe, um, has a great product but didn't have enough money to really push it forward and scale or you know i'm meeting founders that have these ideas that are that are really really strong ideas but they just don't know the next step and the next step and so um i'm in fortunate positions to be able to help folks through the early stages of their business and i think that is is just the best thing ever i'm i'm really happy to be doing the work that i'm doing yeah it seems it seems like it there's a 
definite energy. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the quote, like blessed to be a blessing. So it seems like, you yeah. know, you, 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 you look at the, the things that you've attained in life and, and recognize, you know, there's a little bit of jewel in there, of course. Right. I mean, you can't discount the messenger, so to speak, or the vessel or the tool. Um, but you've been afforded these things for the, for the benefit of others. And so how do you, how do you use that, um, to solve some of these problems as you, as you mentioned, um, yeah. which is awesome which kind of gets me into kind of the next section around uh, collab, uh, which is one of the projects you're working on. Um, and I say one because you wear many hats and, and you do it so well. Um, collab. So talk to us a little bit about that. For those that don't understand what collab is, what is collab and what are you hoping to achieve uh, with, with that, that, uh, that company? Yes. So I am one of the managing partners at collab capital and we are focused on a big vision, which has to do with disrupting the wealth gap in this country. Um, we believe that one of the ways, it's not the singular way, but one of the ways to disrupt the wealth gap is through investment and growth of uh, black owned businesses. And so we're really intent on investing in black founded, black owned companies um, with the idea that these investments should be really targeted and um, fit to the companies that we're investing yeah. in. So we look at it a little different than traditional venture. Um, we think about how do we really optimize for founder ownership and optionality. And what that means to us is how do we help them build a business in a way that works for, the, for them as the founders and for the business itself. Um, so we don't necessarily think that it's appropriate for all businesses to raise you know, millions and millions of dollars and therefore give up a lot of uh, equity in the business because sometimes, and you know, in the case of my family, it's really important to be able to build a great business and pass it on in the generations. And you know, venture doesn't necessarily uh, allow for that, just given the time horizons and the expectations of investors. And so we think that if we are actually going to uh, disrupt the wealth gap in this country, then we have to be thinking differently about how we actually capitalize businesses that are owned by Black founders. And I think it's helpful. Uh, and I, I appreciate the way you described that. Cause I think some of the discussion that I've heard, you know, from the, from the Kaufman access to capital lab or, uh, Zebras United, um, it's, it's on one side, this, this idea that the capital, the structure of capital itself needs to shift, right? That venture only serves 1%, uh, only 1% of companies ever take venture. 83% of founders take some form of non-traditional financing um, that it's extractive, but, you know, but then there is acknowledgement that it does work for some types of businesses, you know, your, your tech oriented, mm -hmm. higher growth type companies, typically that have maybe an expensive pathway to, to the market, uh, that need that, that capital, but it's not really the, by and large, the, the best capital for most companies. Um, but I am curious as it relates to, to black founders, um, how much of it is, is the, the structure of capital, um, is, is inhibitive? Um, and then how much of it is the, um, the, the decision bias or the fund managers themselves? Because I think sometimes like when we, when we just relegate it to capital structures, at least from my perspective, we're, we're assuming that black founders aren't building tech oriented companies that could take venture, right? That they aren't mm -hmm. able to grow venture backable businesses. Um, so how, talk to me about, because I kind of see it as, as a little bit of both. And, and how do you, how do you see that? What does that look like for CoLab and, and the work that you guys are doing? Yeah, it's both. It's definitely both. And I'm a, I'm a living 
testament for it being both. I think the business that I, I built with Park Pick was definitely a venture backable business. Um, but we were not able to access the right amount of funding for the business. And so I actually lived it where I believe that I was a, um, uh, my reality was that I experienced bias in fundraising. Mm. I met investors who did not invest in my business because I was a black woman and they cannot understand how I would be successful in the particular business that I was in. So that is a fact it's verified i've had conversations with people who did not invest in my business and when they were when they were um honest with themselves they were able to say i did not think that you would be successful with this particular business hmm. and that is the reason that i did not invest not because i didn't think the technology was great not because i didn't think that there was a huge problem that needed to be solved it was because you <laughs> i didn't believe that you would be able to sell into this industry or you know name the reason and so it's absolutely true there is bias in in decision making um that leads to fewer black founders who even have venture backable companies that all things aside if you put a white founder in the place of a black founder this company would be able to raise capital that absolutely is the case and there needs to be more options available for really all founders. I think when we talk about alternative capital, there, there is a need for there to be structures that are looking a little bit different um, for the fact that you have this wide open space where folks are not being well served by venture, not being well served by banks, and there's just opportunity in that space. I think it's, our perspective is that it's particularly important um to offer black founders some alternatives now there's an urgency around it because there's such a huge gap as you talk about black founders and access to capital mostly because of lack of access to venture and the fact that it's lack of access to bank loans as well because there's, there's been historical discrimination on that side so there's already a gap you have now a gap <laughs> on the side of accessing what we call traditional you know funding sources and so it's a really, really huge gap. So we think there's a market opportunity there, which is why we focus on an alternative solution, particularly for Black founders. Um, but my perspective is that there should be more Black founders who are building venture-backable companies and can access traditional venture capital as well. So it's, it's both things. Yeah. And I think I'm so, so glad to hear you say that. Um, with such passion too, which is great. Cause it, it, it's true. Cause I, <laughs> I do think sometimes we, we, we kind of put these as either or uh, conversations and, and so, you know, and we're fickle as people. And so we, you know, the next fancy thing is this alternatives to equity, which I think is important and we need to fill these gaps, but we can't ignore the value of venture that works for some businesses and the, and the bias that exists that still needs to be fixed for, for every every citizen, every person that wants to build a business to, to access that capital. Um, and so I think yeah. we need to we need to work there. We need to build better systems. Uh, we need to work uh, to, to hold our banks accountable, uh, as you mentioned, because traditional finance is there. It's, it's a part of the, 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 the capital stack and we can't ignore it. And how do we hold them accountable to, 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 to lend more uh, and lend more um, like your grandfather experience? You know, like what happened to those days where your grandfather could walk into the bank, they knew his name, they knew who he was, and that was enough. 
to yeah that was enough <laughs> or you know yeah it, i mean one one thing to note there is that it was a black bank that he was walking yeah. into so i don't think that he would have been able i mean i know that he would not have nope. been able to get a loan had it not been a black bank but that's another discussion topic of what's happened to the black banks in this country many of them are um you know not doing very well as far as the number of assets under management and you know we've seen many of them close over the last several years it's um something that i think has as we are now most of the people in the country are now waking up to a lot of realities i feel most more people are understanding like oh okay there are still you know black banks in, in major cities we have a few well, actually one here in atlanta and you know um places other banks in, in other parts of the country but um that's a, that's another thing that you know, my grandfather would not have been able to get a loan from if there were we're not commonwealth bank in in uh, mobile alabama that was able to lend to him as a black man um so that's another another thing to <laughs> to talk about there's we can go well, and, on and, and on a, about well and it's about a, that but yeah well even in that it's a it's a sad thing that i knew you were I knew he walked into a black bank and you didn't have to say that, you know, that that's, yeah. that's a yeah. sad reality because I think, uh, yeah, I mean like what my previous conversation with Maurice Jones around CDFIs and when he was in the Clinton white house and helped build that in the early nineties and just kind of what's still not been developed there and how that's still not yet a part of the mainstream banking vernacular. Uh, there needs to be work there. Um, more investment in black banks. I, I, I think too, you know, there's the unintended consequences of things that are perceived as good. So like with our, the globalization of our economy and the hyper consolidation of banks, a lot of people look at that as a, as an efficiency gain. Um, I look at that as a negative on local communities, you know, to the point yeah. whether it's a black bank, uh, a white bank or whatever, being able to walk in and know your banker uh, and, and the decisions are not some algorithm, you know, chunked through, uh, underwriting, um, and you're able to face to face talk to someone. We've kind of lost that in, in the traditional finance space. Um, so I'm hoping we can. Yeah, I mean, that. we saw that. We, I think the best uh, recent um, kind of example of that is what happened with PPP. That first round where the the loans were given out to people who had a relationship with their banker and or who could call. You know, they had a big enough account to be able to navigate that quickly and the folks who maybe did not have that relationship or didn't have a big enough account were completely left out of that first round and so yeah that that local credit union and you know the local banker and having that relationship i think is something that to your point um is very important particularly for business owners but it's it's been lost with a lot of the consolidation that we've seen yeah, and you kind of speak to the the other part that you wrote in your piece last week, which is just the cost of administration and and the cost of management, the cost of, uh, of delivering. You know, and, and and when you step back and you think, okay, how did someone conceive of this? You can you can understand it's like okay, PPP, that's a lot of money. We got to move quickly because America's hurting. And how can we do this quickly and efficiently? Well, banks they they're already so it's it makes sense on the surface, but when you actually start to peel that back and you're like, okay, well, banks are a business, and of course they're going to prioritize their existing customers. Of course they're going to prioritize their largest customers. So then, who gets left off off the list? People that yep. are small dollar businesses, they're you know the ones that get called in week three, week four, week five, and 
businesses that they don't have a relationship with. And so I think we've got to think through those unintended consequences. Uh, even, even in the non-emergency scenarios, like I'm sure the same in Georgia, we've got investment capital available to startups through the state economic development. But a lot of the, the, a lot of the, the ways they deploy that are tr- through traditional funds managed by traditional white guys like myself uh, that look a lot like me or banks. And so again, who, where does that funding go? And we st- we have to start asking yeah. ourselves those questions and, and start to think about that. So it's great to, Definitely. I love, I love the focus of collab because I think the, your, your orientation around the problem and the problem uh, and that's, I was curious because I was curious, why not, the, why not traditional venture? Uh, and it's, it's great to know, you know, Brian Brackeen and, and, and those folks um, up in Cincinnati building a, a fund. Um, but I think your, your problem you're trying to solve is, is, is wealth, wealth building. And, and that wealth building yeah. ultimately comes through ownership. And, and if, okay, so we're going to build wealth for generations among the black community. How, how do we maximize wealth? Well, if we give up equity, how is that maximizing wealth? And we might, you know, and so I, I love that. Can you can you explain for folks though, the, the profit sharing model? What, you know, what does that look like? And then and then I think the second conversation question I have on that is, um, how does that look to other funders, investors? Do do they get kind of weirded out by that? Is it kind of wonky for them? You know, there's always that kind of rolled eye look sometimes with uh, with different term orient uh, orientations. So, yes. So I'll answer the, the second question first. I do think that people um, instantly, when you ask them to consider new things, they're already like, oh, I don't really want to do that work. Um, but the more that we have had conversations and are able to walk people through the model and the why behind the model, the more people are like, we see the light bulb go off and eyes get brighter and people see like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. And, and people be curious about, you know, how do we get to this? Point, why did we decide to do it this way? And then once they understand, they're like, okay, yeah, this 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 is good. Um, so it does take a little bit longer to get to that point with people. And some folks are like, actually, you know, I, I'm gonna say all of this. So a lot of the conversations we've been having recently are people who um, are more, you know, traditional LPs who are now thinking about investing in black entrepreneurs and see what we're doing and because we're so directed about the fact that we're investing in black entrepreneurs that is what sparked the conversation but when they realize that we're doing it a little bit differently then they're like oh, not sure not sure but um it's been great to be able to walk people through kind of the steps of understanding versus it's new for folks to be thinking about just one people group you know thinking about just investing in black entrepreneurs that's already uh, a bar for folks to have to get over and then thinking about the different model. So to say a little bit more about the model, um, we landed on profit sharing because we wanted to figure out what's the mechanism to better align the interests of the entrepreneur and the investor. And what we believe is that if we can help the entrepreneur get to profitability and then grow from there, um, then we should be able to kind of play in that upside of the profit. And again, we're thinking about businesses who maybe don't want to give up a lot of equity through the journey. Um, and so really want to focus in on the fundamentals of the business. And so that's a, that is a specific entrepreneur. So it's not that we will invest in all black founders, because again, some 
some founders want to go the route of maybe not optimizing for profitability, not optimizing for ownership, but really pursuing the high growth and, you know, growth at all costs kind of path that venture sets you up, sets you up on. Um, but for us, we think that it works out and we can make it work so that we're sharing with the profit. So even for us, we're a little bit different than a lot of the other alternative capital funds that you'll see out there that may be based in revenue, revenue-based financing, um, kind of taking just straight off of revenue, very much predictable. We have a little bit more flexibility, I think, working with the entrepreneur to figure out when is the right point for us to begin sharing in the profits um, based on the growth trajectory of the business, the business model, um, things that we can kind of test out from the, the first few conversations with the entrepreneur based on kind of where they are. And the, the key to it is that the profit share plays alongside the, the equity, and they basically have the chance to buy back their equity as they share that profit. So that's the lever is we initially invest, we look just like a early stage investor, but as the business grows and becomes profitable, then the entrepreneur has the, the chance to get their equity back essentially. So that at the end of the day, they can ultimately, you know, if we invest our first investment, um, if she shares back a certain level of profits, she can basically buy us all the way down to 1%. Um, and that way, we'll always have at least 1% in any business that we invest in in the case that they do decide to sell one day or they do decide to um, raise another round of capital after us. Um, but ultimately, we're really focused on making sure that the entrepreneur owns the business and that we've been able to share in the growth of the company as they've, as they've um, become more profitable. So that's, that's kind of how the model works. That's great. Um, it's something that we've you know, built over the last year and a half plus, um, really gone through lots of iterations to make the math work out and the, the legalese work out. Um, but we're really proud of what we've built. And we think that at some point it will become a model for other funds as well. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, and I think in your article, you talk about just the, the difficulties of, of developing a fund. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the, you know, once you get over the, the hurdles that you face as a black woman uh, raising a fund in middle America, uh, even though you have the success of part pick and, and the exit and, and the Google for startups uh, on your resume, it, it, the, the legal costs, the, the fund structure, you know, convincing people to invest, you know, you talk about, you know, the, the untested qualification oftentimes of, you know, the track record and just the limiter that is on new fund managers. Um, it's, it's a tough road. Um, you know, and then the structure, you know, like the two and 20, which is kind of for some weird reason gotten baked into the psyche on how, how funds are supposed to be. Um, I'm curious, yeah. are, are you, are you still kind of in that two twenty? Cause it's interesting. Um, I've started to see a little flexibility with some of that. I've got some fund some friends that do like a 15, five, um, uh, there's there's one fund that I'm aware of in the in more of the crypto blockchain space that's even like a 19.1, and it's uh it's interesting just to kind of think about like okay if we were to actually you know chuck <laughs> chuck this actually only 30 year history of how we think venture investing is what what would we conceive of and how how have you how have you all settled out on on the structure itself uh, of of the fund and fund deployment and, and such. 
Yeah, so we've made a decision that because we were already shaking up uh, quite a few things as far as the model itself and who we're investing in um, and why we're investing, we decided to keep a lot of the fun structure stuff pretty vanilla so that people, at least when they yeah. saw the PPM and they saw the docs, they'd be like, okay, this looks familiar, this looks familiar, check, check, check. Um, so we did decide to make that pretty, pretty standard. But, you know, now that I've kind of put it out there to people about the fact that we are doing this, that, that part at least is standard. People are saying, well, why didn't you just, you should have changed that part too. So wow. <laughs> we'll see what happens with, with fun too. But for this yeah. first one, we wanted to keep some things to make it so that people, uh, so it looks familiar to people and that they weren't having to, to learn each and every part of it because we, we really care about, we care about the founder piece of it. For us, it's, it makes it obviously a little bit more challenging to have to um, invest early into the fund and, you know, have to pretty, pretty much go for a while without um, salaries and, and bank on, you know, what we'll eventually get in carry. But, um, but yeah, we wanted to keep it a little vanilla for, <laughs> for the purposes of, of actually being able to raise the money. To learn more about Colab Capital and their model, check out collab.capital. Like any venture firm, they're always looking for investment partners and opportunities. Also, check out Jewel on Twitter, at Jewel Melanie, where she posts often, and you won't want to miss the powerful articles she writes and posts through her profile as well. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit, and if you've liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.